0: Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. For this episode, we have something a little different for your enjoyment a literary reading. Writers will read from their personal works and those that inspire them. All of the pieces read in this broadcast were written for adult readers, so some themes may need parental guidance if you are writing or listening with little folks. Please use your discretion. In 1974, a group of writers, including Gurney Norman, former Kentucky Poet Laureate, Peggy Dotson-Hall, Jim Webb, and Ron Short, gathered at the Highlander Center in Newmarket, Tennessee to form the Southern Appalachian Writers' Cooperative, or Salk. Salk's mission was to foster community among and encourage the publication of Appalachian Writers. In the 1970s, Salk published New Ground, which anthologized contemporary Appalachian literature. Now Sauk publishes the literary magazine Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel. Throughout their existence, Sauk has met every fall for a writers gathering, and have now included some summer gatherings on Pine Mountain in Whitesburg, for many years, Sock has held an annual Seed Time on the Cumberland literary reading as part of Apple Shop's 30 year strong summer festival of Appalachian arts and culture. This evening, you will hear the 2016 Sock Seed Time reading featuring local writers and others from across southern Appalachia. Without further ado, Mountain Talk Monday brings you Sock mc by WMMT's very own Wiley Coyote.
1: Great big howdy and welcome to this year's Seed Time on the Cumberland reading featuring writers from the Southern Appalachian Writers Co op. This is an annual part of our Seed Time on the Cumberland. Writers come from uh, all over to uh, add a literary dimension to uh, the festivities here at the 30th annual Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival. And with that, We will uh, begin our reading. This is a celebration of 30 years of writings in the Southern Appalachian Writers uh, Co-op annual, well, somewhat annual publication, Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel. And the anthology is called Quarried and uh, is one of the most uh, spectacular uh, literary events to happen in uh, uh, central Appalachia in many, many years, and so we are celebrating Quarry, and uh, we'll have uh, folks reading from that. We're going to uh, start with uh, Jane Hicks. Uh, She's a, a native of East Tennessee, a poet, novelist, and a quilter. She has two collections of poetry, the latest, Driving with the Dead, was published by the University University Press of Kentucky. Would you please welcome Jane Hicks?
2: Good afternoon. Good to be in Whitesburg. I've been hanging around this part of the world since. Gosh, I don't even want to tell my age how long, but I first came up to go to the Appalachian Writers' Workshop at the Hindman Settlement School. And that turned out to be a real turning point in my writing career. I guess that was back in the late 70s, the great Dr. Jack Higgs sent me up here to see about Joe Carson, to see what was going on up there. I was a child. Yes. I want to read a poem bears a little bit of explanation. Someone who was crucial to the writing of Appalachia was Jim Wayne Miller. And some of us were talking earlier. I've I've had, it on, had him on my mind because it will be 20 years that he left us much too soon. He was one of the most generous people with his time and encouragement that surely has ever worked in this part of the world. I know several of us owe great debts to him for encouragement that he gave us. And he wrote a series of poems from the voice called The Briar. And The Briar was what... The migrants to Ohio were derisively called by some of the natives, and the briar had a lot to say. That was one of Jim Wayne's best voices. And I wrote this poem for him after he passed. Believers gather to read the briar sermon, whereupon the briar gives a sign. A rusty moon, coy with clouds, tangled with a creekside sycamore, Reluctant to light the thin bell between Beltane and Lunasa, as marked by our bardic forebears, at Maystone Dining Hall, the rockers filled, then the liars' bench, the porch edge perch, finally clumps of three or four stood in the parking lot like a country store Saturday. They came to retail and hear what one called briar, profit unstained by flatland raising and lack of proper clipped bowels had to say about the state of the world. Not one toted a Bible, but many fondled, worn paperbacks, dog-eared and underlined, for most of them had come out the other side of books, knew the sermon, an admonition to examine instruction of how to get home again, and toted corollary texts. The call to service began with verses of land and language, of white doves in the moonlight, while words hummed like pistons under the hood of a good truck. Then the sermon passed from hand to hand like a subversive text read by poet-held flashlight. Those who knew him started. The words rolled round, a snowball downhill picking up one verse. After another, converts added to the thread. Night fell thicker and darker, and the rusty moon hid away. Do you believe in signs? We most did and breathed one yes. A spirit won't live in filth and keeps its place clean like a fox's den. My spirit daughter elbowed my side. We spied the fox slip into tree shadow on skittery black feet. We saw him glide, tail tip low, one tree shadow to the next, long shadow. Below a low bank to pause, stare back, then I swear it. Grinned that old briar, grin, wide, slick, and sly. He floated between the trees and dissolved among kudzu vines. The words rolled on, no one else saw. Our breasts fluttered like swallows in a chimney. Our eyes wide and full as the fox-red moon parted the mist on troublesome creek and flew free of tree tangles. The hand-to-hand sermon drew us back to become clean and light-footed, like we could fly off the earth, let go of a crowded world, born again to power of creek bank, crow call, and leaf whisper, clean places for the spirit to dwell. And that's the true story. If you have never read Jim Wayne Miller's Briar Sermon, I am not responsible for your soul. You must. And in honor of Jim Wayne, you'll hear some of the words I quoted in this very poem. I want to read what I consider one of his best, Jim Wayne Miller, On the Wings of a Dove. Once, after he'd come back from Ohio, he worked at road construction for a summer back up on the Laurel and Ivy Rivers in Madison. After work, instead of going all the way to Asheville, he'd stop by a bootleggers in Marshall, buy some white, and drive to a place down on the French Broad River below Redmond Dam. Pulling his car down a sandy road, nosing it back into the willows and sycamores so far they closed around it, he'd sit there after sundown, the smell of tar and sweat and asphalt in his clothes, smoking and drinking white listening to bluegrass on the radio, watching the river, mountains, and sky run together in the coming dark. Catfishermen built fires along the bank and over the island and hung their lanterns out over the water. His troubles sat right under his breastbone, black as a tree full of starlings all talking at once. But when Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys played Wait a Little Longer, Sweet Jesus or Blue Moon of Kentucky." And his mind throbbed and hummed like the pistons under the hood of a good truck, hauling his thoughts over a long open highway. And the lights on the river bank got in tune, and his mind turned into a whining saw blade spinning so fast it grew invisible and quiet. The starlings under his breastbone stopped talking. Then white doves rose out of his rib cage, and flew out over the river toward the island.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jane. That's Jane Hicks. And uh, you are listening to WMMT, the literary reading as part of the 30th annual Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival here in beautiful downtown Whitesburg, Kentucky. We have uh, Larry Germain uh, next with us. He's come from uh, Georgia. He's worked as a sign painter uh, while earning his uh, M.A. in creative writing from San Francisco State University. What part of West Virginia is that in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry I couldn't help myself. A blues musician since the 60s, he's blessed and or cursed with a fascination for the rhythm of words, whether on a painted surface, sung in a beer and barbecue blues club, or on the page. He's equally passionate about his uh, day job teaching English to speakers of other languages in Winder, Georgia. Would you please welcome Larry Germain?
3: Thank you. I'm going to read a, three short poems that kind of have a thread. First one's called Floating. When I was a child, I would climb on the swing in the park and ask to be pushed higher, Daddy just to hang at the top of that arc for the immeasurable moment while gravity disappeared and I floated, neither heavy or light, suspended in a bubble between up and down. Astronomers and astrologers see the exact same things quite differently, but at least one point they do agree that there comes a time as it whirls through space that the earth pauses shifts, then turns its face to the sun, and on that day, so they say, if you stood at the equator and placed an egg with its fat side down, it would balance, tipping only when the planet resumes its inexorable orbit of its cosmic dance. Then the tide rises, then recedes, but still there is a moment when the ocean's waters neither wave nor push and pull but wait, before receding into their own depths, leaving the foam and debris of Earth's earliest memory sinking into the sand. Do we remember before we had bones, before there was breath, weightlessly waiting for our exit from the womb until the push and pull of gravity and muscle delivered us from our amphibious utopia, and we swam gasping into the light And so then when I look into your eyes again and again, my body remembers and my breath, my blood, my skin and my bones are but the cage from which my spirit has flown and words will not form in my throat for they cannot speak or sing or shout what I feel within or see without at the top of the ark, neither heavy nor light in the infinite instant between up and down, I float. This one is called Liquid Light. We really don't know how light behaves, or so the sages say. Does it arrive then leave us as particle or waves to begin and end each day? I don't claim to have the answer, but one thing I definitely know, on the sunniest of afternoons or by a candle's glow, there are rivulets of luminescence trickling along her curls decorated with diamond dew drops, sparkling as each lock unfurls. Light clings to my lady's face and form, liquid. It lies upon her skin and shimmers. Even in the dark, she glimmers. And when she walks, oh, like a vision in a dream, so do the very rays of sun seem to flow as well as gleam within my smitten gaze. A glow like caramel glaze, deliciously drizzled on Vanilla Ice Cream. And finally, Blueberry Summer. 99 and a half in the shade for days, the air a shimmering haze that lay over everything while the rays of the sun clawed at our pores. It was a blueberry summer, for sure. We were all a fever with the heat, not the fever of lust so much, you know, the one that everybody's got it started long time ago, but Fahrenheit or Centigrade, the sun so hot I froze to death at ninety-nine and a half in the shade. Blueberries by the brimming bucket, a gallon plucked and tossed into the pail without moving one step from that spot. Blue fingers, even juicy blue toes inside boots worn to keep your dancer's legs from being scratched. Never mind the scorpion which made its bed in them and added its sting to those of the wasps and yellow jackets that preceded it talking on our phones while you were walking the dog, the sun baking your shoulder, where that same afternoon a hummingbird had lighted. Could any kiss ever compare? The sound of you in the pooch sloshing in the creek, almost enough to cool me over the phone, but then I imagined water glistening on the curve of your leg where the curve of your calf meets the curve of your thigh just behind your knee, and I remembered the first time I touched the hollow at the base of your spine, where the sweet sweat of love, so fine, collected there. Blueberries by the bulging ziplock bagful, bounty bestowed with blessings upon friends and family and neighbors, while the heat simmered under our skin, inside, outside, day and night, relentless. Brutal, the television weatherman said. Our bodies remember, you answered, and with the air conditioner maxed, In the wee dark hours of night, our very bones did sweat. The sound of blueberry preserves, sealing, sent the dog from the kitchen, spooked. How could he know you were saving a taste of this summer to be savored, perhaps on a cold, gray day in February, when maybe I might melt away the mist and drizzle of that desolate month with the memory of your suntanned shoulders, shining, slick with sweat, as you filled that bucket to its brim in the summer when I learned how to waltz once again, my beautiful friend. The scent of blueberry pie will intertwine with the image of you standing, long, lithe legs scratched from the brambles, text-talking from inside the blueberry bush, and the motion of your hips in blue jeans as you did the do do divine.
1: Larry Germain, thank you so much. All right, you are listening to WMMT 88.7. This is the Southern Appalachian Writers Co op annual reading celebrating Quarry, the 30 years of the Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel. We have up next Dana Wildsmith. She's the author of five books of poetry and an environmental memoir. Back to Abnormal, is working on a novel, and uh, is from the great state of Georgia. Would you welcome Dana Wildsmith?
4: Looks like it's gonna be a day appropriate uh, for me to read this little short essay from Quarry, because it's about sweat. So hot your boot soles melt. Mama asked me this morning if I've heard a wood thrush yet. Usually we hear the first wood thrush by Jessica's birthday. I love it that she carries around in her head the timing of summer's heralds, and she's right. The wood thrush is very much a summer bird here in Georgia. Thrush song matches the season. It's a bird song as lush and liquid as any early evening in summer. Those words, early evening, have a nice cool sound to them, but they lie. Early evening in July in Georgia is a cesspool of heat and humidity. It is too hot to work outside, but too blue sky gorgeous to bear being indoors looking out a july afternoon is, blood boiling, is a blood boiling siren beckoning you out to heat exhaustion you know better than to answer her call but you do anyway remembering that there are tomatoes to be picked before you plop the second cherokee purple into your basket sweats pouring like money to debts you're sure this what is what hell must be like and then out of that cauldron of smelted air comes the clear, metallic, plinking-like bells tumbling downstairs. It's such a silver sound you feel cooler, calmer, just in the hearing. The wood thrushes are back. Maybe you can make it through the summer after all. Sweat is one thing Southerners of a certain age know with great intimacy. I've added that caveat of a certain age because it occurs to me that there now exists a generation or two of born and bred Southerners who have never lived with heat you can't get away from. The heat's still there, but you can always escape it. In fact, I suppose most Georgians must now think of air-conditioned air as their natural environment. Whatever is outside is the anomaly. This theory is born out of my mind every time I see a new subdivision being built with no thought of designing and aligning houses so they'll catch the best breezes in summer, the full warming face of sun in winter. Houses have for quite a while now been built as arrogant deniers of the elements rather than partners with them. And that works fine, so long as we, are, as a nation, continue to be allowed copious consumption of fossil fuels. Don't get me wrong. I'm as grateful as the next Georgian for the blessed relief of a full night's sleep in August. I can remember when such nights were not a sure thing. I may have been among the last generation to live my earliest years in unairconditioned conditioned houses. In the same way those boxy old wooden farmhouses like Mama's house used to sink into interior deep freeze each December, It was as if the house would suddenly remember, come August, how its family had been begging for heat, and so the house would at last comply. You want heat? Here you go. Every corner and closet is now stifled with heat so heavy it'll make your teeth sweat. It's why old houses in the South have wraparound porches, so families could sit out there and doze and get at least an hour or two of rest before retiring to their miserable beds to stick and sweat and toss and fuss. Why Ours was the last generation to know and be grateful for the pleasure of flipping your pillow over to the cool side. At least when I was a small girl, the misery was a shared misery. No one had air conditioning, except churches and movie theaters. We became the reverent generation, willing to sit still and worship either God or Hollywood, so long as the air therein was sufficiently chilled. But then there came the transition years, when possession of air conditioning or its lack became a different demographic marker. I was an extremely young wife and mother living in Jacksonville, North Carolina, the first time this change was brought home to me. We had been assigned junior enlisted housing at Camp Lejeune's World War II era asbestos shingle cubicles, referred to in military parlance as substandard housing. We had no air conditioning. We had good coastal breezes though, and I don't remember feeling this amenity lack terribly much until one morning at Jacksonville Public Library's preschool story hour. I happened to overhear two of the young townie mothers discussing the August heat, saying they couldn't imagine living without air conditioning. How could you stand to see sweat on your baby's little neck, one of them asked the other. It was one of the few times in my life I can remember feeling shame. My baby had been been sweating her teeny glands out all summer. Did this make me a substandard mother? Did I somehow love my baby less than they loved theirs? Now that I'm older, of course, I would immediately dismiss those women as shallow bitches. Many and powerful are the compensations which come with age. Also, I now have the option of living in air conditioning every moment of every Georgia summer, yet I don't. I have huge ceiling fans in every room. I am a devout believer in ceiling fans, and there are mature sweet gums and sycamores overhanging and shading my roof. I grudgingly allow two window air conditioners to be turned on when heat and humidity build to a certain level on late summer evenings. I sometimes check the thermometer to determine if that level has been reached, but more often I use the dog gauge. When my dogs stop tearing around the house barking like dogs on steroids at every child or grasshopper passing by, when their sleek muscled dog bodies go flaccid as deboned chicken, when they can muster only enough strength to drag themselves to the cool pool of slate floating in, flooring in the dining room, it's time. The air conditioning comes on and I lose the world. Because this is the price you pay for never having to sweat. You live your life in what I think of as airport terminal mode. Anyone who has flown into more than two or three major airports understands what I mean. Your plane lands, you disembark, look around, and realize you could be in any airport anywhere in the world. Your only distinguishing clues are the logos on newsstand t-shirts. This is comforting in that you know where the restrooms will be, where the rental car uh, can be rented, and how far away the McDonald's will be from your gate but the genericness also requires nothing of you in the way of adaptation. When I flew into Tokyo, the biggest adjustment I had to make was in realizing I was expected to sit after ordering and wait for my my McDonald's to be brought to my table with a bow from the employee. Well, that and the idea that in Japan, McDonald's serves flan of all things. When I was 16, I sat in on uh, on a Sunday evening meeting of college age discussion group. They met in the living room of the Methodist parsonage where I lived, so young as I was, they let me stay. One of the questions I remember being debated was whether it's necessary to know evil in order to know goodness. Can you love if you've never felt hate? Does every emotion, every philosophical condition exist as half of a duality? My tendency then, as now, is to answer with a qualified yes. If I had never experienced an Alaska winter, which I have, I would nonetheless possess a circumstantial knowledge of sweat. But I might never have examined my sweat knowledge to discern the specifics which it comprises. Examination leads to deeper understanding. Deeper understanding opens up our codified knowledge into a spreadsheet of its components. And getting to know a whole as the sum of its parts frees us to use those parts as tools. When I lived for a short short while in a deep freeze, my sweatless state led me to think about sweat more specifically than I ever had. And from that thinking, a poem began to grow. It is this idea of thinking through to the specifics of what a person believes to be true, which seems hardest for new writers to grasp. I tell my writing students, don't write about death, write about a death. I tell them death is a concept, and concepts are huge flabby rucksacks carrying one set of meanings for them and an entirely another set for me. I tell them to write down a description of the picture which pops into their heads when they hear the word death. I see my granny in her coffin, my student Corey might say. Good, I respond, tell me your granny's name. How did she die? What were you thinking when you stood over her casket? And as soon as Cory begins to write down these specifics, she's painting a word picture for her reader which will show them exactly what she means by death. Consider this from Donald Hall's Old Life, is a quote from his poem, The Old Life. Back at the hotel, after all day by her bed, I walked up and down, talking to myself without making a sound, saying clear and made a slip of my tongue. My life has eu- leukemia. Hall doesn't need to say another word to help us see what death means to him. We understand that his wife is dying of leukemia, and so is life as he knows it. It is here a second door opens to us, to the reader. As soon as we understand, we care. Making the reader care is, has to be, the goal of all writers. Making people care is certainly my goal as a writer and as a defender of the land. It's interesting how I can cause people to care about the health of my land by the same method I use to draw them to my writing. I give people something small they can see and connect to to stand for a larger condition they can't see listen to how my friend the brilliant poet robert morgan describes a moment like this and this is a quote from robert morgan's poem canning time the heat and pressure were enough to grow diamonds those words could only have been written by a man who was once a small boy sweating alongside his mother and aunts i too have known heat i have patched a roof in august and felt my boot soles melt to the asphalt shingles i have slept in an old inn in mexico in july in a room so hot I would break a sweat brushing my teeth at 6 a.m. I have walked outside to get the mail in Orlando and watched the whole sky shimmer in waves of visible heat. I have walked home from high school in Savannah and had to stop twice under the shade of a neighbor's tree to keep from passing out on the sidewalk. Yet I would not trade my life of sweat for all of Alaska's crystalline ice. There is a generosity to heat which I can't find in extreme cold. Heat gives you a chance to survive its fury without artificial means. You don't need special clothing. You don't need fire or furnaces with their attendant fossil fuels. You don't need to build any sort of shelter against heat. All you need is a spot of shade and a little common sense. The catch here is that shade and common sense are becoming, more and more going lacking in the world of 21st century America. The first sacrifice of most development projects is trees. Trees and roots get in the way of pavements and curbs and slab construction. They're time-consuming and costly to work around, so they go. Developers love the acreage around my farm because it was long ago logged and planted in cotton and tobacco. No trees to cut down on an old cotton field. The builder can start from level ground to grade his acres for houses and roads and sidewalks. I have lived in subdivisions myself and not felt slighted by my circumstances, but I did not then have the basis for comparison I now own. I can step from any spot in my woods onto the paved surfaces of a subdivision and instantly feel a five-degree rise in temperature. There's even a name for this now, heat islands. Somehow a heat island doesn't sound like the sort of place I'd want to visit. I want to live in the world of North Georgia as it is, not as it can be homogenized. I want to respect Georgia's summer heat for its ferocity, and I want to be grateful for any avenues to escape Georgia's undeveloped landscape. I want to work in my garden until sweat builds on my eyelashes so thickly I can no longer see my cilantro, and I want to walk the creek and listen to wood thrushes chiming in another summer evening. It'll cool off, the wood thrushes are saying. You've almost made it through another day. Sit down, have a glass of sweet tea. You've earned it.
1: All right, Dana Wildsmith. Thank you, Dana. All right, Gary Bentley is a Letcher County native, a former coal miner. He now lives in Lexington, Kentucky. If you would like, you can read more of his memoirs about coal mining and his commentary at thedailyyonder.com, which is an online uh, magazine. Would you welcome Gary Bentley?
5: This is just a short piece that I've written, uh, trying to tell the stories that you often don't hear about coal mining and about the miners themselves. As I prepared for the next shift and the long night ahead of me, I stopped at the Hindman Mighty Mart to pick up my lunch for the night. Two Cokes, a can of Vienna sausages, a honey bun, and a pack of sunflower seeds. It was simple, not very cost efficient, but for a single man in his early 20s, I couldn't be too picky. Bart and the other men I worked with, they would bring leftovers from family dinners and often a special made lunch their wife had packed just minutes before they would travel to the mine for their next shift. I was one of the few that stocked my dinner buckets with the gas station junk food and bags from fast food restaurants that littered the highways between home and the mine. I tugged the plastic bag into my lunch box and turned over the key of my pickup truck and the neon glow on the dash let me know the time, 10, 12 p.m. As I traveled the last few miles to the mine, I wiped sleep from my eyes, yawned for the last yawn of the night, and tried to mentally prepare for the long shift of changing belt, building bradishes, and doing what some may refer to as brute work for the next 12 hours. In the changing room, I laced up my boots and loaded my belt with the tools that I would need for the night. A pair of channel locks, a pick hammer, a crescent wrench, vice grips, and a utility knife. Checked my watch, 10.45 p.m. Then Paul, my new boss, walked in. Hey, Gary, haven't seen you in a long time. You've grown right up. How's your mom and dad doing? Paul was a father to one of the kids I'd grown up with in Letcher County. I'd played in summer baseball leagues and went to school with Paul's son throughout my childhood. Growing up in such a small town, this meant Paul knew my parents, and most likely they'd gone to school together as well. Ah, they're all right, I guess, Paul. You know Dad, he's working every day and drinking every night. Mom, same as always, going to church, cooking, and taking care of my little sister. Yeah, your dad's a good one, a hard-working SOB, and a hell of a drinker, too. I never could keep up with him, and that's why I always stick to the good stuff. A little pick-me-up, if you know what I mean. You need anything to get you going for the shift? I knew what Paul was asking, so I politely declined and walked out to wait for the crew at the top of the slope. As I stood there, Bart, another co-worker, came around the corner of the office. Hey, Gary, how you feeling about working night shift? Ah, it's a good job. I'm going to miss being in the middle of the action, getting to mine coal. But you know what? I'm going to have weekends off now, and that means a lot. As Paul walked up, now, don't you boys get too excited. We've got a big old list of stuff to do tonight. We're going to get done what we get done. We're going to stay late and do some more, and they'll figure the rest out until we come back again tomorrow night. Now, Shorty and the rest of the belt crew, they came in early, and they're getting everything set up. We've got about 12 splices to make and a section of belt to pull in, and then there's going to be six bradishes that need built. When we get to the bottom, Gary, I want you to go with Shorty and work on splices. He's been doing this for years, and he knows what to do, so listen. Now, Bart, you're going to go with me and pull in this belt. I'll show you the tricks of the trade. Now, don't get in a no rush. Don't get hurt. This stuff's going to be here to finish when we come back the next night. As we stepped off the slope car and I walked through the airlock doors, I could see the glow of a miner's cap through the dust. It was shining from beneath the mainline belt. I thought it was one of the men uh, crawling on his hands and knees because this belt was no more than 48 inches from the ground, maybe 60 in reality. I could hear the man's voice over the roar of the head drive, but I couldn't clearly make out who he was. All I could hear was, anybody want a viini? Anybody want a viini?" It sounded as if he had snorted enough Xanax to either collapse or completely annihilate his sinus cavities. Not to mention the smoking habit he probably picked up at the age of five. He had a rough, hoarse, nasally, high-pitched voice. Interesting, to say the least. But when my visibility became clear, I could see his small stature. He was standing beneath the belt, straight up, with his pants around his ankles. Sweat dripping from his ponytail, and with a knot of his cap light, my eyes traveled down his arms to his pudgy hand and nubby fingers. He had cut the bottom out of a Vienna sausage can which we like to refer to as viennys, placed his genitals through the hole in the bottom while flicking the end of his penis with a plastic fork and calling out to everyone on the shift. Anybody want a vainy? Anybody want a viennys? Paul, my new boss, just began to laugh. And then as he struggled to put his words into sentences, he goes, boys, that's shorty. He ain't much, but he can splice a belt. Now don't take anything he offers you for lunch and be sure to keep his clothes on. Now, Shorty, put that little sausage away, and you take Gary down to belt four. got work to do.
1: (laughs) All right.
5: Gary Bentley.
1: Thank you, uh, Gary. This is uh, the the reading from the Southern Appalachian Writers Co-op. Kelly Haywood is a Letcher County native, and she is currently the public affairs director for WMMT. She's a writer and the mother of three daughters and uh, does the very spectacular Cole report on WMT. And it's uh, five of uh, my favorite minutes of radio uh, each week. Would you welcome Kelly Haywood?
0: Hello, so this will be the first time that I've tried to read off of a, an electronic device. I prefer paper. Um, But somehow I got behind this morning and didn't print anything off because technology is usually a struggle. And so I've been forced to come into the 21st century and accept the fact that I've moved out of youth and into middle age. So we'll see how well I do here. So I got a grant from the Kentucky Foundation of Women to complete 10 essays about my experience of accepting being female. It was something that I felt shame about from the time I was very little and had to come to terms with. So I'm writing now these essays about that experience and how I eventually came to embrace it and be very proud. And being the mother of three daughters, I really needed to figure that out, so I'm glad I did. And this is called The Evening I Forgave My Mother. And it's not finished yet. I'm still working on it. It was quiet. The girls were outside. It was cool enough to have the door open, seeing as the sun had been behind the mountains since three. Edna, our beagle, lay in the doorway, half in, half out. I was cooking one of the best recipes I'd ever concocted. So if you're taking notes, the recipe is in this essay, so you can write it down. Moving in a thick haze, seeing through glassy eyes. I thinly sliced zucchini and summer squash, placing them strategically on my olive oil covered baking sheet. Squash pizza. It's what I ate when I realized I haven't had a proper meal in too many days. It's what I ate when my body called out for flavor and I'd be eating alone. After arranging the slices, I'd sprinkle them with mineral rich sea salt, black pepper and garlic powder. Cover that with a few varieties of shredded cheese, usually Parmesan and mozzarella. On top, I'd add a bit more salt, a lovely dried basil that I purchased by the gallon, onion and Italian spiced chicken sausage. I'd place it in the oven on 400 until the cheese was lightly browned, usually about 20 minutes. My brain felt exhausted, heavy and hollow altogether. My body was working as if I'd taken a no-dose or a mini thin, like a long-distance trucker. I was speeding on endless cups of coffee. My heart raced and sweat beaded beneath my shirt between my breasts. My breath was shallow and quick. My hands shook. This dichotomy was normal for me now. Despite daily yoga, no refined sugar, walks and riding when I could fit it in, I can't seem to shake the anxiety. The not rightness makes obvious commotion that interrupts everything I do. I've become the present mother at a distance. I could hear the faint laughter of my daughters in the yard as I bent with a sore back to put my pizza in the old grimy gas oven. The heat singed the hair on my face as I opened the door and reached in. My eyelashes, eyebrows, baby hairs. There, right then, it washed over me like a water over a long fall. I had to shut the door and brace myself against the edge of the oven to keep from being forced to my knees. It takes two. Every piece of discontent in the relationship is the contribution of the two. This realization was known and placed carefully in a box somewhere in my being, But I had never had the emotional capacity to apply it to my own life or the lives of those who surrounded me like a loosely fastened picture frame. I was utterly alone and never with a private moment. Utterly lonesome, never alone. I was married, but without a companion to discuss or know comings and goings of myself and our children. He crawled into bed most nights long after I turned in, brushing my legs just enough to alert me that I could no longer stretch my body crossways on the bed. Leaving by 10 every morning, he left us to our day, giving himself over fully to his work, his work involving his hobbies. Though there was very little risk of tragedy, I imagined what my grandmothers felt as military wives, married but alone, My only letters were breakfast conversations interrupted by cooking and children, things of substance squeezed in between bites of food and squealing little girls. As I cried there, the depth of my aloneness created a despair emanating from my stomach and bursting forth through my limbs. The heat of my oven became too much. Garlic and onion melded with the basil and melting cheese, wafting up from the cracks around the oven door. Would I be able to eat today? I moved to brace myself against the sink. I had to pull it together before my girls came back running through the door. I was struck then that my behavior resembled my mother's. My earliest memories of her when she was still married to my dad were of her image in shadows. My awareness of her presence was just behind her bedroom door, her taking us to my great grandmother's house and picking us up from there in the evening. As cliche as this realization has become, we all know there is truth in cliche, I had become an essence of my mother. I was a living shadow, the dream I once held for myself like a fire left to ash and embers. I sank to my knees, drew them into my chest, leaning my back against the cabinet doors. What I did in that moment wasn't mere crying. I wretchedly wept. I ached to be held, and I hugged my legs tighter into my body. My head rested against my knees, and there I remained until the smell of squash pizza was more of melted cheese than warm garlic and onion. My responsibility to my food drew me out of the floor to open the oven door for a peek. The cheese had a dusting of brown, and the onion edges were beginning to blacken. I wanted it to go a tad longer, and I shut the door. I stood up straight, wiping the tears from my face with my shirt tail. With my palms, I gave my face a vigorous rub, as I tend to do when needing a transition. The action would horrify those like my mother interested in wrinkle prevention. I took a deep breath. That breath was enough to connect my realizations into a complete thought, a thought that was so pivotal to my life prior and after this thought that it gave me an immediate bone deep release. It released a burden so heavy that it freed a burning to which I had to submit. My mother wasn't to blame for the divorce of my parents. She had merely taken the action that had ended a broken relationship. Whether her actions were in the right or wrong didn't matter. My mother sought a life to redeem herself from heartache. She had ached with loneliness just as I was now. I heard the girls getting closer to the house with their play. I put some manufactured chicken nuggets and french fries in the oven for them. I have yet to convince them to like squash. I took another long, slow breath, my stomach settled. An energy entered my body that lifted my spirit like Charlie and his granddad floating into the fizzy lifting drink dome in the first Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie. Somehow I felt stronger. I felt like I needed to say things to my husband that I should have said years ago, and I hadn't the wherewithal to do it then. No matter the result, I'd be fine. I'd be fine because my dreams were back and they were relevant, and somehow my life became new in the time it took to make a squash pizza. I took it out of the oven, then I grabbed my phone and texted my mom. I love you, and I'm so glad you are my mother. She responded, that is the best thing you have ever said to me. It made me cry.
1: Kelly Haywood, thank you, Kelly. Up next, we have Mike Henson, who has written four books of poetry and four works of fiction, and is now fishing and writing, as uh, having uh, retired from uh, all of the things he's done over the years. Would you welcome Mike Henson?
6: Thank you, I'm humbled by this, opportunity to read in such a group. i want to read a poem called Ohio River Nocturne, which is in the uh, quarried publication. Ohio River Nocturne. Late summer an evening walk on the banks of the shining remorseful river. There has been no rain for weeks to erode the upriver farms and the water is a clear oceanic green. A cloud of minnows maneuvering to evade a marauding bass darkens the green. A pleasure boat the size of an Irish cottage putters near the Kentucky shore. Up at the bend, a string of barges bears downstream a broken mountain of West Virginia coal. The waterline is down. We walk along a bed of sand studded with gravel, mussel shells, shards of glass polished smooth as opal, and left by fishermen cans of corn, cardboard beer cases, and malodorous tubs of chicken liver. And here is the eyeless corpse of a washed up catfish. And here, among the cakes of silk and shards of styrofoam, driftwood, a steel drum half buried. And here is the social security card of someone, let's not name her, drifted down from someplace upstream, muddied and a little scratched and creased. It has survived because the I won't name her woman from someplace upstream thought to have it sheathed in plastic. And this card is not the only plastic here, for we see, littered by the careless floods of spring, plastic balls in red and green, plastic bottles of every shape and shade, plastic bumpers from wrecked Toyotas, little tragic-looking lost, drowned plastic dolls, plastic weapon toys, plastic everything because it floats so well and is the emblematic product of our society, and it all is all very sad. And yet I'm glad to be here, if I squint a little and think a little backwards, she is still a beautiful river. The ancient mother water, her surface bright and unspoiled, her banks lined with sycamore and willow as she was before she was burdened with dams, before the invasions of benzene and fecal coliform, before she was crossed with the barges of broken coal. So we are only a little sad and we turned to go home. Up in the woods, a low, lonely warble, Three men, arranged a fall along a fallen tree they have taken for a bench, listen, a fourth sings a tragic ballad. The voice of the singer is harsh as that is of a heron, and he is drunk as the rest of them, and I cannot make out the words, nor can I follow the melody, but I know it is a tragic ballad, for he is high and he is lonesome, and this is the river of tragic ballads. Perhaps this is a serotic version of banks of the Ohio, it's impossible to tell but the other men listen patiently to their friend, and they nod in time to the song. I know these men, and I know they are broken by labor, grief, and alcohol, and I know they are continuing to break even at this moment, for it is clear from the spidering red in their faces and the sag in their shoulders and the patience they give to this heron croak ballad. I greet them briefly so as to honor the song and to honor the shreds they retain of broken dignity. One salutes me with his can of beer, and I would stay and listen and be their companion, but I cannot bear to watch them dying by the cluttered and darkening banks of the barge-bearing, silt-shouldered, fish-rich, ballad, tragic river. So I'm going to take on it myself to introduce the next reader, Jim Webb, who is the author of Get Jesus and many other poems, uh, and is the uh, voice which we hear sometimes on this radio station as Wiley Coyote, Jim Webb. Well,
1: uh, thank you, and uh, I cannot believe a literary person, a writer as great as you are, and I still have to go after 30 years, it's Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> Wiley Keyote. Okay, well, I thought you were going to read some more, Mike, but, uh, uh, but th- this is fine. All right, yeah, I'll read a poem from Quarried. It's, um, you know, a good gospel, a, a bluegrass group always uh, has, has a gospel number too, even if they're not a gospel uh, group. And uh, so uh, I kind of like to always have a theological. Uh, poem when I get a chance to do a reading, and so um, we'll we'll have this one. This is from Quarried. This poem is called Original Sin. I believe in original sin. It's just hard to think of something new. <laughs> All right. Yes, thank you very much, thank you, thank you. Speaking, uh, since we have a, a couple of times about being, what, whatever century it is we're in, uh, I thought I would read uh, one of my favorite poems from Quarried, and it's uh, by Ann Shelby, who is from over around Clay County, and a wonderful writer, and a storyteller, and a, a fine human being, and she's been here for Seed Time a couple of times. Uh, But this is called Spell Check by Ann Shelby. It's handy, but not much account for writing hillbilly poems with. It won't let you waller, won't let you foller a feller up the holler, makes you have titles where titties ought to be. I'll go along with changing logwoods into dogwoods. But before I could say undo, it turned my house cat to a house coat, salad, new ground, June bug, graveyard, not in dictionary. You can't have a grandbaby on this thing without special arrangements. One spell transformed my taters into tatters, served me subpoenas when I ordered soup beans. Now it wants to replace the home place with just someplace. Is this the same spell that changed proud to poor, turned minnows into memories? I need flies buzzing in this poem. Cool snap of beans breaking on the porch. Tenor of coonhounds on a moonlit ridge. Exit. Float a while on a honeysuckle breeze. Spell. How long to set on a sycamore bank with your feet in the creek? That's by Anne Shelby. All right.
4: It's a poem by Joe Ensweiler. Nomad. Tonight there is a south wind. It is the end of May. The green fields blacken in the twilight into the colors of their soil. Beyond on the great curve, farm lights sparkle like blue white stars rising that the great earth pulls down behind me as I go. When you are older I will tell you of this night. When I drove my truck across the prairie and was alone and loved you then as a real thing, only that you were only a dream and I a great room dreaming you. Some day you may tell your daughter how I lifted you when you were small, where you brushed the sky and touched the time in my face. But such stories fall away and then we sleep. Oh, my Hannah, all of it was, as I said, earth, dark, Air sweet in my window, and that engine plowing through the silence. You came from there, my flick of dream, handful of soil. It was Ascension Thursday, the Milky Way laughing, and the hush of Christ born into heaven, and one red winged blackbird on the fence line, its mouth wide open in wonder at the wind.
0: That'll do it for this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. If you're of the curious sort, or you're just a writer, and want to learn about the Southern Appalachian Writers Cooperative, visit them on Facebook or their website, thanks to all the fine writers who shared their work with us this year during seed time. And as always to you, thanks for listening to Real Stories, Real News, Real People Radio on WMMT.